You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Mausoleum of Gog taken from Ezekiel chapter 39 and this episode is led by brother Jim Cowie and in it we have a detailed examination of Bible prophecy in relation to Gog describing what the scripture saith concerning the end times of man's misrule culminating in the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth to re-establish God's kingdom the destruction at the Battle of Armageddon at Jerusalem involving many nations is huge and destructive. So many die that a mausoleum is erected as a reminder of any who might challenge God. The new age begins, Jews are restored to the land and nations who challenge the king in Jerusalem will be dealt with. When we come to the book of Ezekiel, there are some very important parts of it, and this is one of them, this section that we've read from this evening. It's wise to actually step back from Ezekiel 39 that Brother Nigel has read for us and have a look at the context in which it's found. What we have here from Ezekiel 33 to 39 is the restoration prophecies, the restoration of the nation of Israel. In Ezekiel 33, Ezekiel is recommissioned as a watchman for his God and his prophecies are vindicated. In Ezekiel 34, we have the prophecy concerning the coming shepherd prince of Israel. In Ezekiel 35, we see the final doom of all anti-Semite powers who have sought to destroy Israel over the centuries. Then we come to chapter 36, where the first 15 verses speak of a transformed land taken from the hand of those who have invaded it as they come to seek, as they say, the holy sites that are there. Verses 16 to 38 of Ezekiel chapter 36 speak of a transformed people as God transforms the people that he, of course, through the covenant made to Abraham is determined to bring back to himself. In Ezekiel 37 verses 1 to 14 we have a revived nation. the the Valley of Dry Bones prophecy, that is. In verses 15 to 28, we have a transformed government as Christ rules over now a united nation, the nation brought back together again with the two sticks of that prophecy. When you come to Ezekiel 38, which is very well known amongst us, you have the latter-day Gentile invasion of the land of Israel headed up by Gog. And, of course, we are fully aware that what's going on now in Ukraine is bringing to pass elements of Ezekiel 38. Gog of the land of Magog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. You know, the original Rosh was in the area of Ukraine and Belarus, which is why Russia is there today. So we're actually watching the fulfilment of Bible prophecy. And then you come to chapter 39, where all flesh is humbled post-Armageddon, and all Israel is redeemed. You would have noticed that phrase that was used there in verse 25 of Ezekiel 39. He says, I'll have mercy upon the whole house of Israel. 
In other words, this is the whole nation, whether they be in the land at the return of Christ or outside the land, the survivors of Armageddon, the survivors of the second exodus are going to be brought together. It's the whole house of Israel. Now, one thing's very important when you come to this section of scripture. The prophecies of the restoration of Israel are framed with what we might call an apocalyptic style structure. That is, the final outcome is revealed, followed by the steps required to achieve it. That's how the book of Revelation is constructed. You get the final outcome and then you get the process by which it is accomplished. And that happens here. For example, Ezekiel 37 sees Christ ruling over the whole nation of Israel. And they're at peace. The temple is there at the end of Ezekiel 37. But then you get 38. And 38 is about Armageddon. It's the invasion by Gog. It's going on to tell you how chapter 37 is finally brought to pass. And so chapter 39 will play its part as well. So probably it's not a bad idea just to get a bit of a feel for chapter 38 before we proceed. This is what chapter 38 contains. From verse 2, which is repeated, you will have noticed, in chapter 39 and at verse 1, we have, of course, a dictator called Gog who dominates the entire Eurasian continent. In verses 5 to 6, the territory east and north of Israel is under Gogian control. In verse 6, we have a dependent Europe which falls under Gog's political control. So you can see that there's a little way to go. Europe is now united against the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But just prior to Armageddon, European nations, particularly nations like France, are going to be in the confederacy of Gog. They will have, they will have been brought into the control of Gog. So there's a little way to go. We could be taken to the judgment seat tomorrow, brothers and sisters, and there's 10 years to Armageddon. If we've got that right, I think we have got that right. 10 years to Armageddon. It's in that 10 years, in a time of trouble such as never was, that things will be brought into place that are not in place today. In verse 8 of Ezekiel 38, we find that the West Bank is part of Israel proper because Gog comes down upon the mountains of Israel, not the mountains of Palestine. They want to make it a Palestinian state. It will not be a Palestinian state. If there is going to be one of them, it'll be in the Gaza Strip as prophecy tells us. In verses 8 to 11, Israel is at peace internally and with near neighbours when this invasion is undertaken. And in verse 12, Israel will be very prosperous, in fact, at the very head of the nations. In verse 13, we know that the first to object to the Gogian invasion are Yemen, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, the Sheba and Dedan of that verse. They're the first ones to object. And they're followed, of course, in due time by Britain and its colonies, the, the young lions of verse 13. In verses 15 to 17 of Ezekiel 38, we have a massive invasion of Israel that comes from the far north, and that's the language that's used. And we'll see that language used again in Ezekiel 39. In verse 18, the God of Israel intervenes to save his people from complete destruction. And in verses 19 to 20, a great earthquake destroys the invading army. And in verses 21 and 22, they mutually destroy themselves and heavenly artillery falls upon them to destroy the invaders. And in verse 23, the judgments produce recognition of Yahweh as Israel's God. So there's a nutshell presentation of what's in chapter 38 of Ezekiel. And so when you look at this chart, this tells us a little bit about what's going to happen. Now you can see here that we've got the Jubilee period, it's a 50-year period. 
We know that the last 40 years of that is the period of judgments from Armageddon. Armageddon, of course, is this red line here in, in, uh, to, to, towards the left of the chart. And the, the yellow line over here on the left is the return of Christ to raise the dead and to take those like us who are alive and remain to the judgment seat. So you have this 50-year period, and it can be divided up into two parts, to the 10 years between the resurrection and Armageddon, and the 40 years from Armageddon to the full establishment of the kingdom when Christ has universal control of the earth. Now, what we're looking at here in Ezekiel 39 is the period from Armageddon to the full establishment of the kingdom, to the full redemption of the whole house of Israel. So that's what chapter 39 is essentially about. It's the wash-up of Armageddon and the destruction of the Gogian host, and then what follows that. And then we're going to go through that process as we look at this chapter. So it's really this period of 40 years of divine judgments that we're talking about here in this chapter. So here's a summary of Ezekiel 39. In verses 1 to 5, we have the complete destruction of Gog in the land of Israel. So that is, you might say, that's the, that's the, the, the wrap-up, the, the finish of what chapter 38 is talking about. In verses 6 to 8, the judgments are then extended to all nations over the next 40 years. In verses 9 to 16, the land is cleansed of weapons and the evidence of death. In verses 17 to 22, the nations are invited to submit and eat Yahweh's sacrifice. And in verses 23 to 29, all Israel is finally redeemed and Yahweh is glorified among the nations. Now I'll point out to you when we get to it, as we go through chapter 39, where we've got clear indication of that 40-year period in operation. But let's just go back to the beginning, shall we? Let's go back to where the catastrophe occurs for the invading forces in the land of Israel. We know, of course, it's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat in Joel chapter 3 and verse 2. This is going to become quite important as we proceed this evening. Jehoshaphat, of course, means the judgment of Yah. It is the place of divine judgment upon, I believe, 185,000 Russians in that particular valley. And, of course, there will be many others in the land who will also be simultaneously destroyed by the great earthquake when Christ and the saints arrive at the Mount of Olives, as is wonderfully described, of course, in Zechariah chapter 14. What we read here in Joel chapter 3, verse 2, is God saying, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there. The word plead has the idea of judge. I'm going to judge them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Now, you've had long enough to look at that photo. We're standing to the south of the city of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem. And there's a valley, you will see. So we're looking north, and we've got this valley. You can see that red line running down. We call it the Kidron Valley. But to the northern end of the Kidron Valley, ancient maps will tell you that there is a valley called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. You see it there encircled with that red line? That's what ancient maps say is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And you can see, of course, as you look at that particular map, you've got the Temple Mount here, you've got Mount Sinai, the City of David, uh, and, of course, this is the northern part of the Valley of the Kidron, called the Valley of the Judgment of Yah. So that just gives the picture of where we are now when we come to have a more detailed look at Ezekiel chapter 39. 
So come with me to that chapter in verse 1, Ezekiel 39. Therefore thou son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Chubal. As we know, it should be the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Chubal. Now you will notice that that's very, very similar to Ezekiel 38, verse 2. So what we've got here is, this is the, you might say, this, this chapter is about the sequel to Armageddon. And it begins with the mop-up process. What do you do with the literally thousands of carcasses that now littered the land of Israel, completely changed by the earthquake, completely reordered. What do you do with all of these carcasses, both Gentile and, unfortunately, Jew? Because two-thirds of the Jews in the land today will perish in these events as well, as we know from Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 8. What do you do with all these carcasses? Well, we're going to find that out tonight. And one of the things that will be done is to create a mausoleum for Gog. We're going to have a look at that mausoleum tonight. When you come to verse 2 of this chapter, you meet a little slight problem because the translators were probably either using a, a text that, that uh, gave them a word that meant sixth or they, they made a mistake, whatever it might have been, because there has been a mistake made here. God's not going to leave any of the armies that invade the land. They're all going to perish. And the correct translation of verse 2, which reads in the King James... And I will turn thee back, but I will leave the sixth part of thee. Actually should read, as you can see on the screen. The revised version says, I will lead thee on, which is very similar. If you have a look back at Ezekiel 38, verse 4, God is going to lead them on. He's going to draw them forth. The, the revised standard version translates, I will drive you forward. And so it's not about leaving a sixth part. They're all going to be destroyed. He's going to lead them into that land and then he's destroyed them there. It goes on to say in that verse that they will come up from the north parts and will, and, and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. He's going to lead them off. He's going to bring them from the north parts. Literally, as Rotherham translates it, to come up out of the remote parts of the north. And if you cast your eye over to verse 15 of Ezekiel 38, that's exactly what it says there as well. Because it says, Thou shalt come from thy place, and I'll give you the RV translation, out of the uttermost parts of the north. So there's a repetition here in the early verses of Ezekiel 39. When you come to verse 3 we read, and I will, I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand, which means that the, the, the motivating weapon is gone, and then at the end of that verse it says, and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. So they don't have any weapons. They are totally disarmed. In other words, they're destroyed in the land. They have no power anymore. And in verse 4 we read, And thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands, and the people that is with thee. I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of, of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Now, look, it's quite likely that until the bodies are buried, carrion birds might feed on the carcasses of those who have fallen in the events of Armageddon. Armageddon, by the way, is a, is a place name. It's the place where they're going to be destroyed. We know that from Revelation 16, verse 16. It's the land of Israel. It's quite possible that carrion birds will feed on the dead for a while. But that's not what that passage really means. That's not the most important meaning. You know, it could be literally fulfilled in part 
but it is used, this symbol of carrion birds or ravenous birds, it is used as a symbol for divine agents in the word of God. And here's one of them. This is Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 11. And this is what it says. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east. Now this is not a bird with feathers. This was Cyrus, the king of the Persians, who came and destroyed, of course, in 539 BC, Babylon. So Yahweh uses this language of a ravenous bird of a man. And of course, we know that Cyrus was a type of Christ and that he had a band of people, his soldiers with him, his elite force, his elite guard of 10,000 who were called the immortals. And so it's going to happen again. We're going to get Christ and his saints, the immortals, destroying the Gogian host in the land of Israel. That's what it means by this ravenous bird that is coming to, cons to, to consume, as it were, the bodies of those who are dead. So here is Cyrus who comes from a far country. I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it, says our God. What about the beasts of this particular verse, verse 4 of Ezekiel 39? Well, that word beasts is translated as living creatures in Ezekiel chapter 1. And Ezekiel chapter 1 is about the cherubim. It's about the work of Christ and the saints. And so again you have an indication that it's a reference to people, not to birds or animals. Now they used to use, they, you can go to the London Museum and you can actually see freezers like this one on the screen where you have, this is Ashurbanipal's victory at the Battle of Tiltuba. And you can see the, the red circles around carrion birds that are actually feeding on dead bodies. So it was something that happened in that time. You, you know, they fell in the field, they were consumed by the fowls of the heaven who become the symbols for those who will destroy the Gogian host. So, let's come to verses 5 and 6. Thou should fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. And I will send a fire on Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. Now, why a fire on Magog? Well, Gog is of the land of Magog. But Magog also includes not just Ukraine and Belarus and part actually of Russia, it also includes Germany. And of course, it's Central Europe where the opposition to Christ's rule will be set up post Armageddon. Now, Psalm 2 is the classic, I'm not going to take you back to Psalm 2, but Psalm 2 is the classic reference for this. After Christ has established the throne of David in the exalted Mount Zion, Yahweh says, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The nations are in tumult. The Catholic nations of Europe will not accept the, the ultimatum of Christ to submit to his rule. And they will set out to destroy him, to oppose him for the next 40 years. And eventually their headquarters will be central Europe. And it's against them that Christ will have to send the saints. And he will send the saints under Elijah, who by that time will have brought 
the Israelites, the Jews from all parts of the earth and will have brought them into Europe and that then will be the means, the weapon whereby God will overthrow the powers of Europe that have set themselves against our Lord Jesus Christ. So fire we know is a symbol of judgment in the word of God and Magog refers to that place, Central Europe, which becomes the seat of rebellion against Christ's rule post-Armageddon. But what about those who dwell carelessly in the isles? Rotherham translates that, dwelling in the coastlands securely. So these are countries that are far away from Israel. Now we dwell on the biggest island in the world. It's not necessarily a reference to Australia. It's a reference to those countries that are far flung, who will not submit to Christ's rule, who will join the Catholic rebellion against him. And so they too will have to feel divine judgments. It's interesting that that word there, that uh, carelessly, which you can see underlined on the screen, actually is the Hebrew word bitak. It's the word translated safely in Ezekiel 38, verse 8, verse 11, and verse 14 of Israel prior to the Gogian invasion. They dwell securely or safely, all of them, same word. And we come on to verse 7 and we see... So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more. And the heathen or the nation shall know that I am Yahweh the Holy One in Israel. That is where you read of the 40 year period because that's how long it's going to take. 40 years, the second exodus of Israel, 40 years of divine judgment after Armageddon to bring that to pass. Where not only will Israel obey their God and no longer pollute his name amongst the Gentiles but all Gentile nations will come to know him as of course this chapter ends with that wonderful picture of the earth being at rest because warfare is now done all nations have been brought into submission to Christ this word pollute by the way has the idea of profaning defiling or desecrating and that's exactly unfortunately what of course, the nation that God selected uh, through Abraham has done to his name for a long, long time. And the heathen shall know. It will be accomplished, as I said, over that 40-year period. Now, we come to verse 8. And verse 8 is probably, for us, one of the most important verses in this chapter. We read there, Behold, it is come, and it is done, saith the Lord God. This is the day, and when you read a term like that, it's not talking about a day of 24 hours. It's the same day, for example, of Zechariah 12, 13 and 14, where 23 times you read of the day, the day of Yahweh. It's not one day. It is a period of 40 years. It's a day of divine judgment. And that's why when you read this passage here, this is the day whereof I have spoken it's talking about this period of divine judgment that sees the whole world brought to heal so why is this important this particular verse well, it's important because of that phrase there it is done this phrase this, this refrain you might call it will be heard three times in the history of humankind the first of those was on the cross. The sixth saying of Christ on the cross was drawn from Psalm 22, verse 31. 
And if you go back to Psalm 22, verse 31, which we're not going to do now, but check it for yourself. Get a literal translation of the last few words of Psalm 22. You know what it says? He has done it. And that's why Christ said on the cross, it is finished. It is done. For him, it was over. He would be raised from the dead and glorified. Now there's a second time. And the second time happens to be Ezekiel 39 verse 8, which is exactly the same as Revelation 16 and verse 17. So I am going to take you to this one. I want you to come to Revelation. Keep your hand if you can in Ezekiel and come to Revelation chapter 16. This is the pouring out of the seventh vial of the wrath of God. And it involves you and me, brothers and sisters, if we happen to be there that, in that day as part of the great company that will accomplish these things that are written in Ezekiel 39. This is what you and I are going to say when we see Gog destroyed in the land and we see the beginning of this process of 40 years to accomplish the divine plan in the earth, this is what we're going to say. We know that from Revelation 16 and at verse, we'll start at verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air or aerial, into the governing region of the earth, which is going to be Christ and his saints, as it were. So the governments of men will be overthrown and Christ will replace that government. And that's why it then says, there came a great voice out of the temple, the nave, the most holy of heaven, from the throne, saying, it is done. In other words, here is another major step in the fulfilment of God's purpose in the earth. Those words are going to come from your mouth and mine if we're there. And that's why Ezekiel 39 verse 8 is so important. Revelation 16 goes on to talk about the destruction of Babylon the Great. That's going to take 40 years to accomplish. But Armageddon and the destruction of Gog in the land is the first major step in that process. And so we will cry out, brothers and sisters, it is done! Now, while you're in Revelation, come along to Revelation chapter 21. Because in Revelation 21, verse 6, we have the third and final time that this refrain is heard in the earth. Now, the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 21 are about the time beyond the millennium. You've got to read it to know that. No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. One nation left on earth, the nation of Israel. Abrahamic promises completely fulfilled, which is what it's all about. The first eight verses of Revelation 21 is all about the time beyond the millennium. And this is what happens when the millennium comes to an end. Look at verse 5 of Revelation 21. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. Sin and death abolished from the earth. Every single soul on earth immortal. God all and in all. The divine plan complete. It is done. I want to be there, don't you? I want to be for the first one, or the, the, the one in Ezekiel 39, but I want to be there, brothers and sisters, to hear that refrain again. Because it's going to be said three times in history, and the, and the second occasion is not that far away. And we know 
What we're seeing right now is evidence that it will come to pass. So that's a very, very important verse in this chapter. Now, I want to leapfrog back here in Ezekiel 39. I want to leapfrog over verses 9 to 17 or thereabouts. I want to come to, to verse 17 because it's on the same theme as verse 4 of this chapter. Let's read verse 17 of Ezekiel 39. And thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every fettered fowl and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come. Gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel that ye may eat flesh and drink blood. You'll notice that's very similar to verse 4. So it's an expansion of verse 4. Now we know that, as we said, every feathered fowl is a, is a biblical symbol for nations. You can go to Daniel chapter 4, verses 12 20 to 22, Psalm 8, verses 6 to 8, Jeremiah 12, and so on. As you can see on the screen. It's clearly used as a symbol of nations. So what is it talking about here then? Well, they're going to gather themselves on every side to God's sacrifice, it says. So it's actually a call to the subdued nations after Armageddon, the ones who come to Christ and submit themselves to his rule. And there will be a lot of them that will do that. It's about them. And they come to join Christ against his enemies. So they're going to, as it were, partake of the great sacrifice that is to come. And so we have Revelation chapter 19, which I, I want you also to come to, to that chapter, Revelation 19, verses 17 to 21, because this is the this is the filling out of what we read here in Ezekiel chapter 39. In Revelation 19, verse 17. I saw, as it should read, one angel which had stood in the sun. The Greek is in the past tense. There's one angel which had stood in the sun. In other words, Christ has set up his kingdom. That's what it's telling us. He's standing, as it were, in the sun. Goes on to say, And he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven... Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And you know, that's telling us something, isn't it? It goes on to talk about the destruction of those who oppose Christ's rule post-Armageddon. It's in that 40-year period that this is going to be undertaken. And so you see, the language used here in Ezekiel 39 is pointing to what we read in, in Revelation chapter 19. It's about those nations who have submitted to Christ's rule, joining with him in opposition to those who have, who have opposed his rule. Now I want you to notice something back here in Ezekiel 39. Come down and have a look at verse... Uh, verse 20. 
says this in Ezekiel 39, Thus ye shall be filled at my table with horses and chariots. When was the last time you ate a chariot? It says straight away you know that this is not literal. This is not about eating literal flesh, literal bodies, literal chariots. It's actually about nations getting involved with Christ against those who oppose him. So you can see, therefore, the language here in Ezekiel 39 is clearly used in a symbolic way. In verse 21 it says, And I will set my glory among the nations, the goyim as it is in the Hebrew, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid upon them. So here we have that 40-year period to subdue the whole earth. Well, you might say to me, well, we came here to hear about the mausoleum of God. You did. But you have to see it in its context. So let's have a look now at those verses that deal with this mausoleum for Gog. Come back to verse 9 of Ezekiel 39. And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows, the arrows, and the hand staves and the spears, and they shall burn them with fire seven years. Really? That means there's so much combustible material that that army has brought into the land that it's going to last them seven years. Of course, you can't burn tanks. Well, I have seen tanks on fire, but you can't burn them for firewood, can you? But there must be so much combustible material that they are going to be able to use it for seven years. And then he goes on to talk about them taking no wood out of the forest in verse 10. And you come to verse 11. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog a place there of graves in Israel. Now this word graves is the Hebrew word kiba. And it means a sepulchre, therefore a grave. And Rotherham translates it, a place of memorial for burial. And we know from verse 16 that it's no ordinary place. Because when you come across to verse 16 of this chapter, you read, and also the name of the city shall be Hamonah. So it's a, it's a mausoleum city, you might say. So it's a structure of some kind, or maybe a number of structures that are a memorial of the burial of Gog in the land. Now it talks about passengers here. They're not talking about people getting on a train. You can see there it says in verse 11, it says, I will give unto Gog a place there of graves in Israel, the valley of the passengers on the east of the sea. This word passengers simply means to pass through. It's talking about travellers. And then it says, at the end of that verse, it's, it, it, in the middle of the verse it says, and it shall stop the noses of the passengers or travellers. Now it's not talking about them putting their hand over their nose so they can't smell the carcasses. That's not what it's about because there won't be any carcasses when they come through. They'll all be buried. It's not about that. This word stop the noses, kasiam in the Hebrew means to stop up or to muzzle. To muzzle mouths. You know, so when they go past this mausoleum, they're going to put their hand over their mouth. They're not going to say a word. It will be so shocking. They see the evidence of millions, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people buried in this place. They're going to be stopped from saying a word. Talks then about the multitude of Go at the end of verse 11. And it says, There they shall bury Gog and all his multitude 
and they shall call it the valley of Haman Gog. Now this word multitude is the Hebrew word Haman. See it again in verse 16. And Haman Gog means obviously the multitude of Gog. Now something very interesting here. There's this link, this connection between Ezekiel 39 and Joel chapter 3 verses 12 to 14. This is what we read in Joel 3, a chapter that speaks about Armageddon, by the way. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the nations round about. And because Armageddon means a heap of sheaves in a valley for judgment, we then read in verse 13, Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. So this chapter is about the events of Armageddon, which is why you read in verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. And that word multitudes, used twice in that verse, is the Hebrew word hamonim. When you put, of course, the I-M on the end of a Hebrew word, it's plural. Hamon, multitude. Hamonim, multitudes. Here's the multitudes of Gog in the valley of decision. And that word decision in the Hebrew is translated in Isaiah 28 and verse 27 as a threshing instrument. So you've got this picture of Armageddon, a heap of sheaves in a valley for threshing. That's exactly what they used to do in ancient times. Today, of course, they get a big machine and they go out and harvest the crops. But in those days, you had to go out, you had to cut it down with a scythe, you had to gather it together into sheaves, you had to pile it up, you had to take it to a place where you could thresh it. And so he, we have this, this imagery of the way the Valley of Jehoshaphat becomes a valley of threshing for the multitude of Go. And then, of course, is the clear message, isn't it, of Revelation 16 and verse 16. He gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon, formed of three Hebrew words. Arima, meaning a heap of sheaves. Gay, meaning a valley. And Dan, or Don, meaning for judgment. A heap of sheaves in a valley for judgment. And what you can see there on the screen is an Arab boy driving a couple of cows. He's got a sled. A cow usually has some kind of metal shoes on their on their hooves and they would go around and round and round and round until of course you had brought all the grain out of the heads of the wheat that's the figures the figure that is used uh, of the of the destruction of the multitude of Gog. so back here in Ezekiel 39 we come to verse 12 and seven months shall the house of Israel be bearing of them that they may cleanse the land Suggests a lot of dead people, doesn't it? A lot of dead bodies needing to be buried out of sight. It says in verse 13, Yea, all the people of the land shall bury them, and it shall be to them a renown, or a name, as that word is in the, in the Hebrew. It hath been to them for a name. So they're going to get involved for seven months. The people that, that, that survive amongst the Jews in the land are going to be put to work. And their work is to make sure that there's not a single piece of evidence of the Gogian confederacy, the Gogian host. They've all got to be buried out of sight. 
He goes on to say in verse 14, and they shall sever out men of continual employment. It says that the idea is, is someone who's occupied day after day after day, except for the Sabbath, burying dead bodies. And they will pass through the land to bury the passengers or the travellers, the passers-by. She'll see what's going on here. And, and if passers-by come through the land, as it says in verse 15, and they see a bone, a dried bone, that's clearly from the Gogian Confederacy, they have to put a sign by it. They're going to put up a sign, it says in verse 15, as they pass through the land. Now, Rotherham translates that, and when any of the passers-by in going through the land find a bone... They've got to put this sign. And that word here in the Hebrew is very similar to Zion. Zion means conspicuous. And that's what this particular Hebrew word means. Conspicuousness or monumental. In other words, not a little sign, but a big sign. Get rid of this bone. Bury it. And it's going to take seven months for many people to complete that work. And it says in verse 16, again, we've got this idea of the name. And also the name of the city, this mausoleum city, shall be Hamona. And of course we know that Hamona means multitude, the burial place of the multitude of Gog. Now I'm going to digress for a little while here, brothers and sisters and young people. Because over the years I've heard people use Isaiah 66 in relation to the destruction of Gog. I want you to come to Isaiah chapter 66 because it's got nothing at all to do with Ezekiel chapter 39. Zero. So let's pick up what we have here, here in Isaiah 66 from verses 23 and 24. We're going to go right back though to verses 15 and 16. So some have thought that Isaiah 66 verses 23 and 24 refers to Gog's slain army at Armageddon. It talks about carcasses there. They shall go forth, it says, and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. But it's got nothing to do with Gog. Armageddon is referred to in verses 15 and 16. So let's read from verse 15 of Isaiah 66. For behold, Yahweh will come with fire, and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire says divine judgment for the, for the, by fire and by his sword will Yahweh plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many it says so it's clearly a reference to Armageddon in verses 15 and 16 verse 20 refers to the restoration of scattered Israel through the work of Elijah in the second exodus. And that's over a period of 40 years. We know that from the testimony of Micah 7 verse 15. So you've got another 40 years involved here in verse 20. When you get to verse 22, you read about the millennial heavens. It says in that verse, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. So clearly we're now in the kingdom age, the millennial period. So that's the context in which you've got to read verses 23 and 24 
of Isaiah 66. Verse 23 refers to worship in the millennial age when the temple is the central focus of all peoples. It says it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another that all flesh, not just some, all men. In other words, they're all part of the kingdom of God by this time. They shall come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. Now it can't be the Gogian host, can it? Because one, we're not in the right time period. And secondly, not a single bone of the Gogian confederacy will be left above ground. You won't see any carcasses once they're all buried. So it cannot be a reference to Ezekiel 39. But what does it mean? What is it talking about? When it says they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. What does that mean? Well, there's decaying bodies left in the open, obviously, isn't there, in verse 24. They rot. They're burnt by fire in the open. You know what that refers to, brothers and sisters? It's a warning to all mortals, mortals in the kingdom. Here is a picture looking down upon the temple. See it there in the middle? You see that dotted line and it goes through the southern walls of the temple? To the north of that is the saints' portion of the land in the, in the holy oblation. To the south of that is the Levites' portion. And we know, very clearly stated in the word of God, that when people access this house, they cannot use the eastern side. They can't do that because Ezekiel saw waters of swimming running down to the now living sea, today called the Dead Sea. So they can't access. Moreover, there's no access anyway because these gates are shut once Christ and the saints enter this house when it's completed. So what about their access? Can't get that in through in that way. And we know also that there's a law of this house. It's in Ezekiel 46 and verse 9. A very clear law. He that entereth in by the way of the north gate, it says, to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. And he that entereth by the way of the south gate shall go forth by the way of the north gate. He shall not return by the way of the gate whereby he came in, but shall go forth over against it. So this fundamental rule will be followed. So let's have a look and see what happens here. Let's follow the path of some worshippers. Let's come up and have a look and see what happens. Now, there's going to be a dump to the western side of the temple, far enough away that the, the, obviously the odours don't affect the worship in the house. And that dump is for all of the leftover food, the, the scraps from meals, but it's also there for dead bodies. People who have come to this temple thinking that they can come into the presence of Almighty God with an evil heart. People who come that don't go home, their bodies are cast onto the dump. Now, I've had people say to me when I deal with this, they say, oh, that's not my vision of the kingdom. Well, my suggestion is you take off your rose-coloured glasses and read the word of God. Because this is here for a reason. It's here to warn people that you cannot get away with deceiving the Almighty. He will catch up with you. And these people are caught up with when they come foolishly to worship in the house with an evil heart. You don't do that. You're not going home. So let's follow the path of a worshipper. 
Here he comes, he's coming up from Yahweh Shema to the south, the, the dormitory city where worshippers, mortal worshippers will be housed while they're in the land. He goes through the north side because that's the side of sacrifice. He makes his sacrifice. He stays in the house for the best part of the day, but he's got to obey the law. And the law is you go out the other side. He's gone out through the south gates. What about this man? He's coming up. He doesn't have to offer sacrifice. He did it the day before. He does his business in the temple. He leaves through the north gate. He can't go around to the east like the other fellow. He's got to come around here. But there are also people we read about in Ezekiel 39 who will come from the east. And they will go past the mausoleum for Gog. Ezekiel 39, verse 11. They will go into the house, make their way around, and go back past the mausoleum. What's the common denominator of all of these travels in the land? The common denominator is that they all pass the dump. They all have to go past the dump. And that's what Isaiah 66, verse 24 is about. They shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die. That doesn't mean you've got immortal maggots. It means that there's a constant supply of bodies for the maggots to eat. That's what it means. Yeah, people say, oh, well, it's terrible. No, it's not terrible. These people don't deserve to live because they've come into this place with an evil heart. That, brothers and sisters, will be a warning to all mortals who will be living a lot longer than what you and I do. And we have to be reminded that they're still mortal. So we come back to Ezekiel 39. Now there are a multitude of mausoleums. You've got one up the road here. It's the Sepulch family mausoleum. Okay, you've probably been past it many times. There are a multitude of mausoleums. They look different, all of them. But most of them have towers. The two you can see here is the mausoleum of uh, Harlacarnassus and the, and the mausoleum of Hamilton in the UK. Now, as you can see, they're quite, the one on the left hand is quite ornate. We don't know what the mausoleum for Go can look, look like, but it says it's going to be like a city. So it may well be a number of buildings that are involved. And when you go back into history, there are mausoleums, like the mausoleum of Cyrus at Pasagade. Cyrus was born in 600 BC. He died in 529, 10 years after he had captured Babylon at 539 BC. He died as a relatively old man, leading an expedition against the eastern tribe, the Masagati. And he said this in his inscription on the tomb, O man, whosoever thou art, and whensoever thou comest, for I know that thou wilt come, I am Cyrus, and I won for the Persians their empire. Do not, therefore, begrudge me this little earth which covers my body. You know what happened? In a short while, the, the looters had arrived. Anything that was worth anything at all had been stolen from his tomb. There's another man who built a mausoleum. He built this one. It's called the Taj Mahal. It is perhaps the most famous tourist site in India. And you can see the multitudes going into this place. It's not a palace. It's a mausoleum because the emperor's wife died and he loved her so much that he built this mausoleum for her to memorialise her all through history. You see, what we have here is 
a variety of mausoleums. We don't know what the style of Gogues will be, but it will be something that stops the mouths of those who are passing by. It will be an awesome experience when they pass it by. But there's another greater sign in a way in this chapter, Ezekiel 39, that will muzzle all. It comes towards the end of this chapter. It's the final redemption of Israel after 40 years of the second exodus under Elijah. And here it is in Ezekiel 39, verses 27 to 28, when God says, When I have brought them again from the peoples, as it should read, plural, and gathered them out of the of their enemies' lands. So these are the Jews who are outside the land at the return of Christ and sanctified in them in the sight of many nations because they'll be used as a divine weapon against those who oppose Christ's rule. Then shall they know that I am Yahweh their God which caused them to be led into captivity among the nations. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. That'll be a great sign. The, the complete conversion of the whole house of Israel. And there are two stages to the deliverance of Jacob. Two very essential stages. The first, Christ will save the tents of Judah. We read in Zechariah 12 and verse 7. He will save the tents of Judah first, immediately after Armageddon. That's the one third who will survive those awful events. And the work of Elijah is the second stage. He will lead the second exodus for 40 years to recover all the Jews who are outside the land as we read in Ezekiel chapter 20. So you can see this period of time. You've got Armageddon there at the beginning. The saving of the Jews who survive in the land and then the work of Elijah and the saints in relation to those who are outside the land. And I want to leave you with a formula to properly interpret Bible prophecy. When you read of Israel and Judah in the prophetic scriptures. This is the rule that must be applied. Now I've challenged people for the last 30 years about this. No one's ever been able to find a place that doesn't fit, except perhaps for Isaiah chapter 11, and even that can be easily explained. These are the names that God gives to the Jews outside the land and to the Jews in the land, in the prophetic scriptures. Not when we're talking about the land, but when we're talking about the people. The names Israel, Ephraim, and the remnant of Jacob refers to scattered Jewry worldwide. And there are many examples of that, as you can see listed on the screen. When you come to the term Judah, it refers to the Jews in the land at Christ's return, which is why you've got a classic example in Joel chapter 3, verse 1. When I shall turn again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, that's a reference to 1948, the formation of the state of Israel. God doesn't call it Israel. He calls the people in the nation of Israel, he calls them Judah. Yeah, that's the way the pro prophetic scriptures describe the Jews in the land at the return of Christ. But all the Jews are outside the land at the return of Christ. They're called either Israel, Ephraim, or the remnant of Jacob. Try it out for yourself. Test it out. When you do your readings, test that out and you'll find it is true. So finally, one tower will remain in the earth. In Zephaniah 3 verse 6 we read, I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. In Isaiah 30 verse 25 which speaks about Armageddon, 
And there shall be upon every high mountain and upon every high hill rivers and streams of waters in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. We read in Ezekiel 38 that every wall shall fall to the ground. There will be one tower left. It's the tower of Ezekiel 39, verse 11. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give to Gog a place of memorial for burial in Israel, even the valley of them that pass through east of the sea. That's the mausoleum of Gog, the only remaining tower. But not a body in sight, just a mausoleum. What's all this about, brothers and sisters? What's the purpose of it all? All through the book of Ezekiel, you read these words. 63 times this phrase occurs in the book of Ezekiel. They shall know that I am Yahweh, he who will become. So you've got they, ye, the nations, shall know that I am Yahweh. And 16 of those 63 are in the restoration prophecies from chapter 33 to 39. That's what it's about. It's about upholding the righteousness of our God, about declaring his glory among the nations. And I hope to be there, and you hope to be there, brothers and sisters, to see it all come to pass. And we want to say those words, don't we, when we see the destruction of God. We want to be there when that great company says, it is done. And for you and me, it will be done. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.